Hello, everybody. Welcome to another People and Dance Floors podcast. My name is Anthony Killick, and today I'm going to be talking to Stuart Taylor about uh, media representations of drugs and drug users. Stuart is a lecturer in criminal justice at Liverpool John Moores University who has written extensively on this subject, which is why we're so interested in talking to him today. Um, Stuart, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Anthony. Absolute pleasure. Looking forward to it. Okay, let's dive right into it. The first thing that, uh, well, one of the things that I found particularly interesting about your work is that it has this connection between media representation and uh, government policy on drugs and drug users. So if you could start by just giving us a bit of information on how the media have tended to represent drugs and drug users over the past, let's say, couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's you have to acknowledge at the start that news media, despite being kind of diverse, despite being communicated through various platforms, different mediums, and despite you know a kind of plurality of discourses being being evident, that there is certain dominant understandings, certain dominant themes in relation to drugs, their use, and indeed uh, drug users. And certainly, the news media here don't stand alone; they're part of a much wider machine which includes the language of political rhetoric, of drug policy documentation, uh, even the focus and language of much academic research that's undertaken within the field. And what it does overall, those different facets, which very much involve and include the news media, reduce issues of drugs and their use to the most simplistic and kind of bias, I would argue, uh, understandings. And I suppose in, in academic parlance, uh, wow, I've kind of described this is, is a reductionist drug discourse where we take a very complex set of issues and kind of taper it down, funnel it down to a real narrow, simplistic understanding. And that's a kind of process uh, that's that's kind of characterised by what me and my colleagues have referred to as a kind of drug apartheid, where we only see certain drugs and their users in certain kind of lights. And what that process means is that the news media have these specific kind of themes. We take all drugs um, and reduce that to a consideration of illegal drugs. So we tend to allow certain drugs to fly under the drug radar, uh, many legal substances, um, substances that are embedded into our day-to-day -day lives. And instead, we become kind of infatuated with those drugs that are deemed to be the most dangerous in society. But importantly, within that kind of news media, we also taper down all illegal drug users and reduce those to the kind of social object that developed since the kind of 1980s onwards in the uh, in the UK, that of the kind of problematic uh, drug user, an individual uses heroin and crack cocaine, and certainly recent developments around spice would kind of fit into that kind of uh, mould. And what we tend to therefore see is a focus on those types of users and their behaviour, their lifestyles um, is associated with certain negative outcomes with addiction, with crime, with ill health, with a need and requirement for treatment, an inability uh, to socially function, uh, if you will, more, more kind of widely. And this then kind of acts as a, as a generic indicator, I suppose, of illegal drugs, all illegal drugs and, and their use, users. So we get that just say no kids unless you want to become uh, an addict, uh, a criminal, uh, dysfunctional like them. Um, and this very much kind of marginalises uh, 
these uh, these users, many of whom are actually marginalised uh, beforehand in, in, in that way. But crucially for me, it also invisibilises certain aspects of drug use, framing these as alien concepts that illegal drug use for the most is perfectly functional, uh, controlled, uh, bloody good fun, and a kind of just another characteristic event in people's otherwise largely unspectacular uh, existences. Um, and so this kind of, again, belies the kind of fact that the majority of people who use illegal drugs don't encounter dependency, don't require treatment, function perfectly well as employees or indeed employers as parents or children, um, etc. And I suppose so what the ultimate outcome of these representations are is that we shackle understandings of drugs and despite an array of insightful research into drugs uh, in, uh, in, in recent times, uh, which provides much more nuanced understanding of them and their users, this reductionist just discourse still prevails and that feeds in to the continuation uh, of the war on specific drugs and specific users. I dispute that there's ever been a war on all drugs, it's on specific drugs and specific users and that legitimises the ongoing paradigm of, uh, of uh, drug prohibition. So yeah, hence tapered understandings at best, myth and fallacy at worst characterise news media representations. Right. And there's I mean, you, you mentioned there that the kinds of drugs that there is a war on and the kinds, therefore, of people that there is a war on. And it brings to mind um, something that I've been watching for some of my own research recently, which is a BBC series called The Drugs Map of Britain. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the general um, synopsis of that series is that they bounce around to different areas of the UK, focusing on a particular problematic drug that exists in that uh, that part of the country. Uh, one of the things that is most immediately apparent uh, about that series is that all of the people that are represented in these different parts of the UK are all working class or poor people, right? So it isn't a drugs map of Britain. It's a drugs map of working class Britain. And those two things, therefore, end up becoming synonymous. And you end up wondering what uh, what changes could have been made to that series, how differently it might have looked if, for example, they had included an episode on cocaine which which they haven't done so yeah it's it's a it, what do you think about uh that that idea that that drug problems are specifically working class issues and again this is how that concept of the drug apartheid where we've got all drugs but our drug laws focus on certain types of drugs and their users and that has historically been along lines of class and race and and, and gender and even sexuality in, in, in that kind of sense but what we have is that drugs and their use are evident across the social strata. Yeah. And we can we can we can start off with with caffeine, with sugar. You know, that that we'll take that for granted that everyone kind of probably use that to the to the kind of uh, same same extent or it's essential in people's lives to that that kind of extent. We can look at something like alcohol. Um, we've got those that um, acknowledge uh, the most frequent drinking tend to be um, middle class professional men. In that sense, um, it is class based because they're arguably the people that from a health perspective we should be most concerned about. But but we're not because we tend to be focused more 
on the working class or young individual who's been drinking in the nighttime economy. So that is one example of how that focus on class is, is skewed in that way. We look at something like tobacco. Um, that, uh, in terms of uh, class, uh, uh, in terms of employment status, etc., is very much associated with people. The, 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 le the least uh, highest earners tend to be the ones who smoke. In, in that sense and this, that disproportionality. But when we look at all drugs, if we take opiates, that is equally used throughout the social strata for, for, for pain relief or, or whatever in that sense. But when we take a specific subset of that, heroin, then despite that being used, again, I would say across society, I think there's a um, disproportionate number of people from socially marginalized communities who develop dependencies on heroin in that sense. But that, in essence, is the drug apartheid. We don't look at all opiates. We don't look at the use of all opioids throughout society and those people who perhaps are dependent on prescription uh, opiates in, in, in that sense, such as the you know, explosion of this in the United kind of uh, states. Instead, we take a specific subsection of that drug, heroin, and we associate it with a certain type of individual. And rather than questioning perhaps why disproportionate numbers of people from socially marginalized communities develop a dependency on heroin, we kind of frame it as characterizing their lives and their kind of lifestyle. So it very much fits in with what you've alluded to there, that association with certain groups consuming certain substances in certain ways and that being seemingly symbolic of a wider, um, morally problematic, dysfunctional lifestyle in that sense. Right. And it's that it's the level at which a lot of representations of uh, media representations of drugs and drug users don't go down into that kind of complexity, don't actually look at some of the deeper underlying social causes that uh, create those kinds of problems that they're trying to actually represent. And that, I think, again, really feeds into the problem. It's about the way in which class intersects with drug use and, and, and across various sections of society, I think. But all, also, I think what, what we see here is that there is a connection, if you like, between media representations of drug use and the kinds of drug policies that are formulated within uh, government and within other um, kind of legislative sections of society, if you like, is there, or, or, or rather, what do you think, what what kinds of connections do you think exist between media representations of drug use and drug policy itself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the two are synonymous with with each other. In simple terms, they uh, they, they they mirror each other. I, I I couldn't tell you for sure whether. Um, news media representation leads drug policy or drug policy um, leads media representations. The two very much mirror each other in, in that sense. Um, first of all, they fail to recognise, as I've said, that full spectrum of substances as drugs. So drug policy focuses almost exclusively on illegal substances. And even within that, certain subsections of illegal substances. Um, secondly, uh, since the 1990s in England and Wales, Drug policy has funneled the war on uh, drug markets to a war on drug users, but only those who are deemed seemingly problematic uh, drug users, which again has close associations with notions of class and marginalisation and exclusion. 
And so drug policy, I'd, I'd say, uh, whilst involving still both health and criminal justice kind of issues and agencies, has become more focused on and led by um, the criminal justice rather than uh, health uh, services in that sense. So resultantly, drug policy since 1998, in, in my view, can be characterised, it's, it's had four objectives, and these fit nicely with the news media representations of uh, the need for certain drugs to be banned and certain drug users as, as being kind of concerning. Um, it, it's had four objectives. The first one, to stop drugs uh, from being available. The second one, to stop demand for drugs, so to basically stop drug use. And the third and fourth ones are interlinked, they're to identify and to address the uh, issues represented by problematic drug users. Now, I always think it's interesting that if you look at these four kind of pillars, if you like, that we followed for 20 years, the existence of each of them shows and evidences the failure of the previous one. So we wouldn't need to try and discourage drug use if we actually stopped it from being available. We wouldn't then need to identify and address the behaviour of problematic drug users if we actually were successful in stopping people from using drugs. So two of the four main objectives of drug policies 1998, I would say are unachievable. Drug prohibition shows us it's historically impossible to stop people wanting drugs and for those drugs to be available. So in essence, what drug policy has attempted to do on a realistic level for 20 odd years in England and Wales is to identify and address the problems uh, of those users of heroin and crack cocaine who were seen as criminal in that way. And actually, this has uh, you know, been the, the key focus of new media representations, but also policy. And it's seemingly on the surface achievable. People can buy into this. There's 300,000 problematic heroin and crack cocaine users in this country. If we can identify them, round them up, then if we were to believe the statistics put to us by the government, we can probably wipe out half of all crime in society uh, and respond to it in that way. So how have we gone about this? Have we said, well, actually, um, drugs and crime are definitively linked uh, and therefore, the, it makes sense to give all heroin users um, pharmaceutical grade diamorphine because then there's no excuse for them to commit any property crime to fund apparently their, um, their dependency. No, we don't do that. We do give them methadone. We do engage with them in certain ways. But instead, we've engaged in this cycle of criminalisation and coercive uh, drug treatment um, in, uh, in, in, that, in that way. And again, it seemingly is achievable. We believe these individuals are, are zombies, if you like, that they were going around their lives. Uh, drugs have kind of hit them from nowhere and then suddenly they've gone on to commit crime. And so let's get these individuals into treatment and therefore get them uh, off the drugs and suddenly crime will disappear. Ridiculously simplistic understanding of the situation, but it's one of those trends that drugs equals crime that's evident in news media and policy, that there's a need to treatment, that treatment is the holy grail in uh, in, in that kind of uh, thing. So again, the two being very much kind of synonymous, uh, if you like, in, 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 in that way. And you know what? In terms of drug policy, you know, that, that's brought some positive elements. 
it's provided extra access and extra support for users of heroin and crack cocaine from those most marginalized communities uh, and, and made that kind of more available uh, to them. The only problem with this is that it's kind of cemented the stereotype of the problematic drug user and uh, cemented that in relation to issues of uh, class and, uh, and, and communities. And it's also resulted in some very unhelpful developments, uh, I, I think. So whilst we've um, developed treatment services and extended them and arguably made them more professional within the criminal justice system, that's not been mirrored in the community. OK, which I think is self-defeating. You know, why have enhanced services in the criminal justice system when you can hopefully engage people in an earlier trajectory in their drug use in the community in the first first kind of instance and nip that issue uh, in the bud, if you if you will, in that thing. But also because the focus of the criminal justice system has been on that 300,000 problematic users, just the same as the news media uh, focus on in that sense, we've largely ignored um, the widest body of, of drug users and perhaps the needs that they have, those that are seemingly non-problematic or framed as such. And those kind of drug services have been reduced to the point of elimination uh, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, the community. Um, and drug services more widely in the community have been underfunded and, uh, and, and struggling in, in, in that kind of uh, way, which is important because criminal justice referrals to treatment only make up 13% of all referrals. So, but they're dominating uh, in that way. Uh, and, you know, questionably, drug treatment services have tailored themselves to be more adept to the needs of the criminal needy rather than the healthy needy, as kind of Jerry Stimson uh, wrote about some uh, kind, kind of time ago. So we ignore the majority in both representations, but also drug policy uh, in, in that sense. But even amongst those 300,000 problematic drug users, we fail to acknowledge the role, as you've kind of mentioned earlier, around the role of structural social issues in their drug use. Um, dependency to opiates, is it evident throughout the social strata? Yes. Is dependency on heroin evidence throughout the social strata? Yes. Is dependency on heroin greatest amongst those from marginalised communities? I would argue, yes, it is. But we fail to appreciate the wider reasons for that, those social structural issues, which are disproportionate related to dependency. Instead, we, using those dual themes of media representations of policy, identify, criminalise, coercively treat, fingers crossed, oh no, it's just going to all repeat itself in a vicious cycle. Yeah, I think one of the ways I've tended to think about this is that um, you see kind of simplified representations of, for example, what Libyu Alex addressed to is called spice zombies um, standing in the street. So that's pictures of people who are clearly heavily intoxicated and clearly like homeless or, or at the very least down on their luck, to, to, to say the least, um, that then get put in, for example, newspapers and television programs. And it's that sort of that sight of that maligned person or, 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 or community of people that then through that kind of representation create or elicit sort of knee-jerk government responses to and you mentioned the reduction in sort of drug treatment there I'd say that has possibly to do with the kind of ongoing series of austerity policies but also I think because treatment when people are faced with that kind of that the horror of that problem, if you like, then that, that kind of goes out the window because we are then reduced to these 
simplified solutions, which is to basically lock everyone up and throw away the key because the complexity is is of the issue is actually thrown out of the window because the way in which drug problems are represented is that 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 that, that level, if you like, of um of of horror. That what that that kind of spice zombie. Uh, kind of representation that we see in the media. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, as I've kind of uh, written about this previously in terms of that that kind of notion of of, of a hyper reality where we, we we within the drugs policy field we 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 we, we develop policy certainly domestically based on these these kind of bizarre um, unreal uh, kind of situations on on very few drug users. Who we tend to represent in certain ways. So Libby's work is is very interesting around those that kind of framing of of, of spice users as being inhuman, really dehumanised, you know. And we see this on a regular basis, whether it be um, you know people on bath salts uh, being associated with cannibalism, whether it be uh, uh, um, crocodile and that that kind of notion of addicts eating. Um, themselves and and taking their own skin off, uh, whether it's be the the zombie like behaviour of, of spice users, we take that hyperality and that is that is the barometer that we use to then start off considerations around drugs and 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 their use. Uh, and you know and that and that is that is something our understandings of that and how that transforms into policy. Um, is is very important for for two reasons. Ad. One, you know, it's a great example of uh, of, of methadone uh, when that kind of uh, appeared, uh, and there was two, there was a there was a key case where two uh, young uh, males from Scunthorpe um, died as a consequence of that, and there was the whole uh, political kind of uh, uproar around it, and eventually, against the advice, the advice, uh, the advisory council of misuse of drugs, the government banged it. Class B misuse of drugs act done, and then later we see the coroner's report whereby they hadn't taken methadone. They take methadone, fundamentally different in in that kind of sense. But we see there how a fake story, a hyper reality, created a law in in that kind of sense. And look. We're all part. The important thing is here, we're all part of this hyperality because no matter what drugs you use, you have specific understandings of specific drug users. And this actually acts uh, as a glue because, on the widest sense, in terms of news media representations, it frames certain drugs and their users as wrong. Don't do that, it's bad. But it permeates down that if you're a kind of ecstasy user, you, you kind of uh, employ perhaps those techniques of neutralization. Well, I can take three tablets when I go to Creamfields because at least I'm not a spice zombie like that. And again, it acts as a kind of social glue uh, in, in that kind of sense. So in a way, we've become reliant on that kind of hyperreality. In a Durkheimian sense, it's quite functional because it allows us to judge ourselves as to whether we are an acceptable drug user or not. But as you say, it permeates all the way through in terms of what drug users are, what their needs are, how we approach treatment, and indeed how we approach them as actual human or dehumanised entities. And one of the things we're beginning to approach here, I think, in the conversation is this um, 
the the uh, what you've called in recent work neoliberal notions of irresponsibility. So we can talk about what is an acceptable drug to take or what space is acceptable in which we can take drugs. And so could you talk a little bit about what you mean about um, this 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 notion of an acceptable form of intoxication, an acceptable form of, of drug consumption? Yeah, and I think this is where you kind of interlink kind of notions of responsibility and acceptability as defined by neoliberalism, which I'll go back on to in, in a moment. I know it's a term that some people struggle with in terms of what it means, etc. Yeah. Um, but also kind of interlinking that with the wider consumer capitalist kind of environment. And within these kind of wider context, there's a clear, I would argue, demarcation between acceptable and unacceptable intoxication practices. And this is indicative of this kind of very odd drug apartheid whereby certain substances are uh, culturally embedded and accepted and their use actually brings competence, brings status, can actually, you know, elicit envy. Um, I've, I've, I've read some wonderful, um, you know, media reporting of of Russian oligarchs trying to outspend each other in champagne wars, you know, Jay-Z, uh, in in the in in the news for for spending you know nearly hundred thousand dollars on on champagne it's culturally iconic you know that person whether you like champagne or not yeah it symbolizes something um, I, I often say to friends and family how many times have you opened a bottle of champagne on your own in your own front room and the the answer is usually never and that is because it, it symbolizes success it symbolizes celebration it's ingrained. Yeah, if we look at the work of David Nutt et al., uh, you'd see them argue that alcohol is the most harmful drug in society, more harmful than crack cocaine, more harmful than, than heroin, etc. So it's an odd one because it's socially framed as that, but the evidence perhaps suggests uh, it, it, it's quite kind of harmful. But still, that brings social competence. On the other side, we've got drugs that encourage or ensure social marginalization and they're kind of clearly marked uh, as um, uh, as uh, um, not acceptable as being linked to wider issues and that's a crucial kind of factor uh, in, in in terms of this uh, and certainly who uses these drugs is essential uh, it's very important in terms of them characterizing whether uh, their use is acceptable or, or not. So, yeah, you know, on, on the one side, we have um, well, people pride themselves in their drug use. Uh, we're, we're, we're living in a middle class desire for authentic artisan products. People get, uh, you know, their, their Christmas stockings full if they're a gin connoisseur of, of specific artifacts, a craft ale enthusiast, a, a Cuban cigar aficionado. But illegal drug users aren't construed along such lines, uh, which is perhaps a shame for certain people because they could take great pride in their illegal drug use, etc. But it's also this kind of concern that certain drug users associated with a wider pattern of behaviour and a particular kind of position in society, which we've alluded to in terms of social class uh, earlier on. And I think, you know, it's not just illegal drugs here. It can be the use of legal drugs as well. There's actually uh, a bit of a kind of blurring between legal and illegality based on notions of what is acceptable and what is not in that sense. So, you know, in alcohol policy is a really good example. 
here. If you look at the um, uh, 2012 most recent alcohol policy uh, in terms of England and Wales, there's a real focus on binge drinkers. Half of the key objectives focus on binge drinkers who are represented as a threat to us. Um, the non-binge drinking Neanderthal. Uh, city centres are kind of painted as no-go areas. And we're kind of sold that this is all based on individual responsibility, that these individuals are drinking far too much, losing control and acting in antisocial, violent kind of ways, rather than actually saying, well, look, let's look at these synthetic spaces that represent the nighttime economy. Let's look at the practices of the alcohol industry, etc., and actually see how they're being held to account for these behaviours. You know, really poignant uh, time at the moment for issues of uh, crime and criminal justice. The aftermath of uh, Sarah Everard uh, has kind of brought proposals from government, you know, for undercover police officers to be placed in bars, bars and pubs and clubs to identify predatory or suspicious kind of uh, uh, characters. Uh, it's just a ridiculous response because sexual violence is embedded, accommodated and even commodified in the nighttime economy with the role of alcohol and its use kind of embedded within it. So first of all, we have something like the binge drinker who's held account for their actions and vilified in that kind of sense. But as a society, we have a light touch, drink responsibly, gamble responsibly versus the free market liberalization of something like that. And it's the same with illegal drugs whereby addiction has become the kind of dominant lens through which we view these kind of uh, substances. And, and this is pretty bizarre because addiction within the consumerist society should be the pinnacle of consumerism. You know, the, the addict dependent on a product is the kind of consumer par excellence. In, in that kind of thing. You know, and look, we look at how the world works, how industry and businesses work. We know that in a lot of industries, 80% um, of what businesses sell goes to 20% of their consumers. So we, we require certain consumers who consume a lot in, in that sense. But dependency and dependency on substances has no place in neoliberal society. Neoliberal society being that notion that everyone contributes, everyone has a use, has a purpose, is in charge of their kind of own kind of destinies. So addiction seemingly, while sitting well with consumerism, actually indicates a wrongdoing within it because the individual consumer has not engaged in an appropriate manner in two senses. One, they've chosen the wrong drug. Yeah, it's illegal. You shouldn't be taking that. How can you when we've got this wonderful array of legal drugs? Number two, you've not been able to kind of control that illegal drug use and therefore you've become the fallen. You've become an addict. You're living a failed existence because you can't do anything but consume the substance. You're not uh, productive. You're dependent on welfare, on treatment services, on methadone, etc. So when you're not producing or being a productive citizen, you're seen in that way as a double failure. And I suppose that links with what um, uh, Zygmunt ba Bauman has kind of said, that these individuals are the kind of collateral casualties of consumption. They're a spectacle. They're a burning effigy in the sense of we frame addiction, news media, drugs policy, mirror each other. 
as a kind of warning to us all. Yeah, this is a life failed. This is not the life you wish. So make sure if you consume substances, you stick to the very kind of definitive boundaries and parameters of acceptable consumption practices. Right, because of course the neoliberal subject, as you've kind of alluded to, is someone who is productive, who is resilient, for want of a better word, and who can actually bounce back from any kind of problems they may face. However, um, socially embedded those problems are, it's up to the individual to be able to get around it um, themselves, isn't it? And then as the media continues to represent people who cannot do this, we are invited to cast our disdain on those particular people. But actually, that just enforces a significant amount of pressure on us, the viewer, to, again, fall into line when it comes to these kinds of consumption practices, even though we might want to go out and experiment and do other things. It's that representation that keeps us, if you like, from doing so, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, we've, we've built upon that. We've used these kind of burning effigies as, firstly, a, a kind of a way to de-responsibilize the state. Yeah. That these individuals have, have, have had all the chances, all the choices that all of us have, and they've failed. Yeah. And, and, and now living a failed life and their examples to us all not to act in that way. But at the same time, we profit from them. You know, we've, we've developed wonderful, uh, wonderfully masochistic, you know, uh, fly on the wall documentaries, uh, you know, celebrity rehab with Dr. Drew. You know, Jeremy Kyle made made a kind of um, a kind of, you know, a, a selling point around this wonderful article from Amanda Atkinson, Harry Sumner, which, which looks at that, that kind of frames, you know, the individuals completely failing and then coming to Jeremy Kyle for redemption, for a final shot, shot at kind of saviour. And, and, you know, this I increasingly, it's something I'm increasingly interested in, in how with the reduction of drug services that are state funded and the availability of them and enhanced waiting times, that void is being replaced by uh, private drug treatment. Yeah. And within that, it's sold even more as luxury, as a cultural experience. You know, we... We, if we hear a, a, a celebrity is going to the Priory, we don't go, what's the Priory? It's akin to going to a, for a McDonald's, you know, and their PR manager is aware of that. It's the first step to that individual achieving redemption. And we're seemingly moving to a point whereby less and less people can access treatment and therefore arguably redemption is out of touch. Um, but for celebrities, et cetera, who can access private treatment, you go, you buy a cultural experience that's going to apparently get your life better. You've made a sensible choice. You bought a sensible product there that's going to achieve uh, a better life for you and showing you're making responsible choices over over your kind of uh, drug use and that you you leave um, a kind of phoenix from the ashes. And that is increasingly how we're framing treatment, you know, addiction, bad treatment, salvation, you know, addiction, a failed life, an unproductive life. Now, actually, that's very simplistic. A lot of people take a lot of pleasure from their dependency to drugs in different forms, very much so. But we now frame addiction as something that another product can solve. And uh, that this for me is, is really interesting. And I'm increasingly interested in that luxury rehab kind of market uh, and selling uh, a kind of better life to us.
Mm, that's a really interesting question. The selling of luxury rehab, <laughs> the, the, the invitation to come back to society and, and, and using that as a, a point of commodification in itself. Um, just moving towards the end, I wonder if you've got any thoughts on uh, recent instances of, we mentioned Carl Hart, Carl Hart rather earlier, recent instances of drug users coming out, as it were, and, um, you know, admitting to society that uh, they they use drugs, in, and in particular in Carl Hart's case, heroin, which I found particularly um, interesting because it's it's seen to be the worst kind of drug, isn't it, heroin? And, and so what, what do you think about that? Do you think that in doing so, people will have a positive impact on this relationship between media representation and drugs policy, or, or will it ultimately be a negative impact? Well, I, you know, I, I, it's a really good question, first and foremost. Um, and I, I think it's interesting because um, when we kind of come out in that kind of sense, often if you look, David Nook compared uh, a decade ago, compared ecstasy with horse riding. Yeah. And the the, the dangers. He wasn't daft when he did that. He, w- he was hoping to to kind of engineer some kind of publicity to get to get the kind of message out there. It was a very, very intelligent approach. Uh, Carl's approach here you know, is, is similar. I'm, I'm going to say that I use this drug, which is, which is true, um, but it's, he knows it's the, classed as the most dangerous drug. And, you know, this is an extent where perhaps we have to go to, that we do have to aim to kind of grab attention in, in that sense. Um, I think what Carl did was important, and I don't want to sound condescending, but it, it was brave uh, in, in, in that sense. And uh, But I say that more because the reaction of people. Um, I've wrote else, elsewhere that... Um, it's not just drug users who are othered, but actually those who come out and speak about drug policy or speak about drugs differentially are othered themselves. There's there's a kind of uh, vitriolic reaction to people who question the status quo. That could be, you know, at the University of Sheffield um, providing students with uh, advice about how to inject safely. You know, don't je- inject alone. Very sensible advice. But the reaction absolutely kind of intense about that and they had to remove that and we see this in terms of people giving sensible harm reduction advice just take a third third of an ecstasy pill etc but a kind of symbolic and vitriolic reaction kind of to that so you've got to be prepared i think to to say things but you've also got to be prepared to be othered yourself in 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 that sense so i think what Carl did was was very important um and crucial to an extent because really the research that we know exists that shows that this this isn't a surprise people take heroin you know middle class people people with professional careers take heroin on a recreational kind of basis some might be independent in that sense we've got studies exploring the controlled use of heroin amongst different individuals we know it exists but that remains an alien concept to the wider kind of population and indeed uh, to, dr- to drug policy and criminal justice kind of policy uh, makers in, in that sense. So we have to bring that attention in these in individual ways. So in that thing, I, I think it's good. I mean, for me, I want to reach a point where we're all recognised as drug users. That, that's that's my point. So, you know, saying about our individual drug use you know, it becomes rather inconsequential because it, we, I want us all to be recognised. We're a society of drug consumers and we all use different drugs for different purposes um, throughout. It's just that we symbolically frame certain drugs 
as being detrimental and uh, and negative in that sense. And look, there's been a there's been this kind of uh, trend, you know, a movement towards referring to people who use drugs. Mm. Um, I, I'm not someone who who signed up to that um, because I think we're all drug users, and we we we've moved away from wanting to frame label people as drug users. So it's people who use drugs. Um, but I see us all as drug users uh, because every single one of us uses multiple drugs uh, every day. Uh, and it's not until we see all drugs in the same kind of scale or hierarchy or whatever um, that we can continue to unpick them and, uh, and make sense. And look, we continue to embed drug use into the lives of our children by responding their good behaviour with sweets and fizzy drinks. We then embed demonisations and untruths about certain drugs based around these stereotypical uh, um, uh, kind of understandings that dominant um, and it's these that we need to break free from um, but I fear that the reaction uh, to people who come out and speak like this simply get, reinforces the reductionist drug discourse in, in that way um, and feeds into a wider cycle whereby we ensure the continuation of drug prohibition and you know it's a very important time in the world at the moment uh, with the transition, some people would argue, uh, you know, a quiet revolution, as it's been argued, uh, in relation to, to, to drugs policy. Um, but for me, with there's a lot of questions still to ask, particularly how dominant understandings about drugs continue to dominate, say, drug policy reform. Legalised markets tend to be driven more by popularity and, and profit than notions of harm uh, and, and reason. Um, decriminalization policies are being judged through the lens of prohibition whereby we see them as successful if drug use rates haven't gone up or if more people are in treatment or if less people have got AIDS or HIV or, or bloodborne diseases. The majority of drug users in countries where drugs have been decriminalized were not dependent on drugs, did not encounter disease, etc., did not commit wider criminality. What about them? We continue to judge drug policy reform through the lens of prohibition, or as Ian Wormsley has said, through, through the ghost of prohibition in, in that sense. So drug policy is historically grounded in notions of control, morality, profit. I see little evidence that is, that is changing, uh, but something at least Carl there uh, has made a, a definitive point, which I think is a powerful one. Right. It's been really interesting to talk to you uh, today, Stuart. Thanks very much. And I encourage all of our listeners to go and uh, look up some of your work and have a good read of, of what it is that you've been doing uh, over the past few years. Um, we'll put some links down underneath the video and hopefully in the comments section, we'll get a little bit of a discussion going as well. Um, yeah, uh, thanks very much for speaking to us. We, we can end it there, I think. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Anthony. Cheers. Bye bye.